you know, the church, not, not speaking of some like nebulous organization, but the church, God's people in Christ Jesus have always had to wrestle with, with issues, questions, controversies that if they, if, if the church had kind of gone along with those different paths would have resulted in a very different kind of church, would have destabilized the whole thing, would have, uh, would have divided it or whatever. That, that's always been the case, that you've had these, these streams of thought that kind of could have led it in a very different direction. And, and by God's grace, he has either protected the church from that or in other cases where, where leaders succumbed to those kind of streams of teaching, eventually brought the church back, brought about restoration, reformation. We're looking at, um, at an issue this week and the next couple of weeks in the early church that was probably the most dangerous, potentially divisive stream of thinking and teaching that the early church dealt with. It had been bubbling under the surface for about a decade or so before Acts 15, but in this chapter it erupts. That's why some scholars look at this and say this chapter is the most, it's kind of the centerpiece, the turning point of the whole book of Acts. But when you hear that, I don't want you to think, okay, so this is like, this is a history lesson today. This is something that they dealt with back then 2,000 years ago. I want you to understand that what they dealt with is at the very heart of Christian faith and remains so to this day. See, I also don't want you to think, well, maybe, maybe it was a big deal to them now. Maybe it's still important today, but maybe it's like a kind of a secondary thing. I don't know if you ever think, like, that was a throwaway sermon. Like, that could have been, you couldn't have not, whatever, it's fine. This is not a throwaway sermon, okay? Get that out of your mind right now. What we're talking about today, what, what they reaffirmed as the early church is what we desperately need to rediscover. What they reaffirmed is that the very heart of Christian faith, it has been the spark for revival in the 2,000 years since, and its neglect has been the cause of spiritual decline and death. Have I convinced you of the stakes at play here? This is huge. This is everything for us today, here, and now. So let's get into it. We're in Acts 15, start with the first couple of verses just to set the scene. Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. We'll stop right there. There's a lot going on in the background that Luke doesn't fill us in entirely about. So we kind of have to put some pieces together here. Paul and Barnabas, as we've looked at in the last couple of chapters of Acts, we've been in this for a couple of months now, this, this section, Paul and Barnabas had just come back to Antioch, the church that had sent them on this kind of missions trip, on this, on this, on this journey where they were preaching the gospel and planting new churches. Uh, they had gone to a bunch of different places in what is now kind of southern Turkey, which was then known as the province of Galatia. So if you see the, the kind of the green area there, that was a lot of the cities that they visited. Uh, There's a a familiar pattern that emerged when they went to a place. They would go to a synagogue, which was uh, kind of the Jewish worship center. They would start there. They would explain to the Jewish people how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promises through the prophets, how Jesus was the climax of Israel's story. But it wasn't just Jews who would be in the synagogue. 
There would also be God-fearing Gentiles. These were non-Jewish people who were drawn to many aspects of Judaism, but didn't want to go all the way. They didn't, they didn't want to be circumcised. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to be fully converts. So they kind of hung out on the edges. And these people heard Paul and Barnabas talking about how in Jesus, entry into God's people, into the kingdom, was no longer by ethnicity, or by external rites like circumcision, but instead was by faith in Jesus. And they understood that this was incredibly good news for them. And they st- so they started to spread it to other Gentiles. And so unexpectedly, probably to a lot of people, the Gentiles became this incredibly fertile ground for the gospel. It spread like wildfire. We've been talking about gospel outbreak. And that, that's what we see where Paul and Barnabas go to these places. Now this wasn't the first time that Gentiles had come into God's people, right? Even come to faith in Jesus. We see it happening in Antioch, the church that sends Paul and Barnabas. We see that that was a church that had a mixture of Jews as well as Gentiles. We see it even in this episode with Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But what was kind of like, it was like a a slow trickle of Gentile conversions became like a raging stream. It was like an atmospheric river kind of thing where it was just this this raging river of, of people just coming to faith in Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas, they see this happening. They come all the way back to, to Antioch there, which is kind of on the right side of the map. Uh, again, where the, the, kind of their, their home church. And a little while after that, they, they receive a visit. The church in Antioch receives a visit from some people in Jerusalem. And uh, I think we actually read about this visit in Galatians chapter 2. There's some debate about this, but I'm with, uh, not like I'm a scholar, but I'm persuaded by scholars who kind of put these pieces together and say that Galatians is probably the first book in in the New Testament written. It's not, I mean, the Gospels are about events that happened before it, of course, but in terms of when these books were actually written, I think Galatians is probably the first book. So in Galatians chapter 2, we read this. This is Paul's words. He says, when Cephas, and that's, that's uh, Peter's Aramaic name, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James was the biological half-brother of Jesus and had kind of emerged as one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So you've got these men who are sent by James from Jerusalem to come up to Antioch, probably to check in with them, bless them, kind of fellowship with them a little bit. But when these people come, they're alarmed by what they see. Because as we talked about, Antioch is an incredibly diverse church, ethnically, mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And for believers in Jerusalem, I mean, your whole world is Jewish, right? And so, so you, you kind of still have this belief that you need to stay separate from the Gentiles. You don't, you don't talk to them. You don't eat with them, certainly. The only Gentiles you can do that with are those who have been circumcised, who have, who have had full entry. And I don't know how they figured that out. 
who fit that description or not, but in any case, that was the only way that you could kind of hang out with the Gentiles in, in, in Jewish thinking. And so these, these people from Jerusalem come and they go, what are you guys doing? And they exert this incredible pressure on the Gentile Christians to get circumcised. And they exert incredible pressure on the Jewish Christians to cut off contact with the Gentiles. They, they're so strong, so persuasive that even Peter, who had seen the Holy Spirit fall on Cornelius' household, even he got led astray. Even he started saying, okay, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. Even Barnabas who just saw all of that incredible stuff happen in Galatia. He gets sucked into this. And Paul is really worked up about this. For Paul, this is a really big deal. This is a hill that he is willing to die on. This is a huge thing for him. So in this kind of scheme of events, um, Paul sees this happening. He hears that that same pressure is being exerted on, on new Gentile believers in Galatia. And so he sends this passionate and urgent letter that we have as Galatians to them to kind of say, don't, don't give in to this pressure. And then he and I, I guess a, a recently restored Barnabas go to Jerusalem to kind of debate this issue you in Jerusalem. So that's kind, of the, that's, that's kind of the overall scheme. Now, why was this such a big deal to Paul? Why was this a hill that he was willing to die on? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So here we're going, oh, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So that's, that's kind of the summary of this teaching, this pressure is that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Verse 1 gives us another version of it. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Can't be saved. Salvation here probably should be thinking about rescue. Rescue from God's judgment righteous judgment on sin, the safety of right standing with God. That's, that's what salvation looks like. And these people are saying you cannot be saved, can't be rescued, unless you do certain things. Unless you check off some boxes. Unless you're circumcised. Unless you obey the law of Moses. And we read here particularly that the group of people promoting this are Pharisees. Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear the word Pharisee, my, you know, my intuitive reaction is, oh, those are the baddies. Those are the bad guys, Right? If you grew up, so I think I, I mention this every time I talk about Pharisees, but growing up in the church in the 90s, there was a song that we even sang. I don't want to be a Pharisee, because they're not fair, you see. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I just want to be a sheep, ba ba. I just want to be a sheep, ba 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 ba. Anyways, that's, that's how it went. We just knew, you don't want to be a Pharisee. They're not fair, you see. They're the bad guys. But, uh, but Pharisees really in the first century... In the first century, Pharisees were one of a, group, a number of different groups of people who were, who were trying to figure out how is Israel going to be saved? How is Israel going to be saved from the Roman occupation, from Roman oppression? And the Pharisees' response to that was actually pretty pious. 
Their response was, we're going to be saved if we obey the law. If we honor the Lord, if we make sure that we are strictly adhering to the law of Moses. Some other groups were like, well, we should just get along with the Romans. We should worship their gods. We should just kind of do whatever they ask us to. The Pharisees, in a lot of ways, you'd look at them and you'd say, well, they were actually, they were pious, right? They were, they were trying to honor the Lord. Honor the Lord, obey him, and then he'll save us. Now, some of these Pharisees believed that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah, he had died and rose again, and so they put their trust in him. They, they became followers of Jesus, but they hadn't understand, understood all the implications of that, which is often what happens, isn't it? That, that as new believers, we don't always understand all the implications, even as old believers sometimes. You, you kind of go, oh, like following Jesus means this has to change, and that has to change, and this has to change. They hadn't understood yet how how far-reaching faith in Jesus was. And so they kind of took this whole scheme of salvation, obey, do certain things first, and then God will save you. And they had applied it to this situation with the Gentiles as well. Do certain things and then you'll be saved. Now, this is the really, really important thing to, to kind of realize about this whole thing, about this whole issue, is that they were not arguing about what is appropriate after salvation, they weren't talking about how you respond, how you live in light of salvation. That's the realm of ethics. It's the realm of morality. Those are important questions. That's not what they were talking about. They were talking about what is necessary prior to salvation. What do you have to do as a human being in order to be saved? In Paul's view, they had gotten the order wrong. They'd gotten things mixed up. They'd put the cart before the horse. Just like a weird saying. Like, we should update that, right? I don't see a lot of carts and horses in North Vancouver, but you get it, right? They, they, had, they, had, they had mixed up the order. They had reversed things. And for Paul, this, this was such a big deal to reverse this order, to put something before salvation for a few reasons. And one reason is because when you do that, you cheapen God's love. Because you're saying that I have to do something first and then God responds by displaying his love to me. He kind of withholds that until I prove myself worthy of it. In parenting, that's known as, as dysfunctional parenting. I mean, if I, I'm, I'm a dad. And if I withhold my love from my kids until they prove themselves worthy of it by getting all A's on their report card, scoring 30 points a game in their youth basketball league, obeying me perfectly and completely, that's going to leave some pretty deep wounds in them. And frankly, Zachary's like three foot nothing. So that 30 points a game thing, probably not going to happen anyways. So you, you, you kind of withhold your love from your kids. It just leaves them deeply wounded and scarred because, you know, your, your, your love is, is conditional on their performance. Now, if I love them fully, if I, if I display that to them, chances are that's going to lead to their obedience and respect and, and, and reciprocated love, right? But it's, it's my love as a father comes first. And so John, in his, in his letter in the New Testament, emphasizes this. He says, we love because he first loved us. It's his love first, then ours. Later on, he says, or earlier on, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's his love. It's his initiative. That comes first. You try to put something before that, you've cheapened his love. 
Second reason, this is such a big deal to get the order wrong, is because if, if salvation is dependent on something that we do, that, that really creates a, an environment of anxiety. It removes any possibility of assurance of salvation because you really don't know if you've done enough, if you've checked off enough boxes, if you've done your part. This is the case for a lot of, a lot of world religions. Islam, for example. I'm just going to pause there, say Islam, and then take a drink of water. Um, Islam, for example, will say that, that salvation is dependent on your good works outweighing your bad ones. There's a verse from the Quran. It says, they whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed, but they whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul abiding in hell forever. It's kind of like this scale, right? Your good deeds outweigh your bad ones, then, then, you're, then you're saved. But the question is, how, how do you know where you stand? Is there like an ATM somewhere? You get your moral account balance? Like how, how do you know which, which, one, which, which side of the scale is weighing heavier than the other? In Buddhism, for many Buddhists, you, are, are kind of, you, you remain in this cycle of rebirth and reincarnation until you sufficiently uh, master the eightfold path. You're, 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 you're enlightened and then you, can, then you can be saved from this world of suffering. But again, there's this uncertainty. Have you done enough? Have you, have you become enlightened enough? You never know until, until the moment that you die, I suppose. And, and in, our, in our culture, in our, our day now, let's say especially people under the age of 40, it's maybe a little bit different because as, as you've seen in the statistics, uh, the majority of people under the age of 40 are, are not religious at all. So there's not the same kind of conscious anxiety about pleasing the divine. Instead, I would say it, it's so much worse for people who have lost religion altogether because now you have no hope of someone else saving you. It's really up to you through and through to save the world, right? To save the world from climate change, to save the world from injustice, whatever it is. It's on humans entirely. And that's a heavy load to, to, to bear. And, and then, you know, instead of trying to gain God's approval, you're trying to gain the approval of society. You substituted God for the social media mob, and I hate to break it to you, but the social media mob is a whole lot more fickle than God. And so if you say something, if you do something online that is slightly not in line with the accepted dogma, even if it was 15 minutes ago, if it's not anymore, I mean, your name's going to be dragged through the mud. You're going to need to recant. You're going to need to apologize. And even that, it might not be enough. Right? You just, there's this constant anxiety. Am I, am I being liked? Am I being followed? Am I gaining the approval of society around me? If salvation is based on prior works, on us doing something, I mean, it's just, it's a miserable way to live in a lot of ways. And, and then, just besides all of that, for Paul and the other early disciples, to, to think that prior works are necessary before salvation it just, it just undermines the entire truth of the gospel. And Paul says to the Galatians, if you succumb to this pressure to be circumcised, if you think that's going to save you, then Christ is of no value to you at all. It's, it's like either you, you, you think that you're going to save yourself or, or Jesus is going to save you, but you can't have it both ways. It's, it's it just the whole thing is undermined if you put the cart before the horse. And this seems to be what Peter Understands. This, is, this seems to be what he realizes as he makes his response in Acts 15 in Jerusalem. We'll pick it up in verse 6. 
the apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart. I actually, the, the Greek there is literally the heart-knowing God. It's like this, this title, this adjective. I love that. He's the heart-knowing God. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Let's break this down, what Peter says here. He says, look, what I'm about to say, you should put, you should put some stock in this. His words carry some weight. Not because, as some have thought, that Peter is like some kind of be-all, end-all dictator in the early church, whatever he said went, but because he was the one that God used to first break that Jew-Gentile barrier. He was the one God used to do that. That's a reference back to Acts chapter 10. We referred to this earlier. This is, uh, this is a story that we were in earlier this year. You might have been with us. Where Peter, he's, uh, he's a follower of Jesus. He's, he's Jewish. Still has all of those kind of mindsets and, and scruples. You know, observes the Jewish food laws. Stays separate from the Gentiles for the most part. And then one day he has this vision where God essentially gives him permission to eat anything. It's like, yeah, bacon's on the table, baby. Let's go. He's like, you can eat anything now. And then God tells him, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to the home of this, this man named Cornelius. You've got, you got to go with the men who he sent. At the same time, God kind of gives uh, direction to this Gentile centurion named Cornelius to send for Peter. God's orchestrating this whole thing. Peter enters into this home. Cornelius, uh, a God, again, a God-fearing Gentile, knows something about Judaism already, but he's gathered everybody he knows and their dog. They're all, they're all together there in the home. And Peter begins to explain to them who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And he's not even at the end of his message. And it's like they're, they're eating everything up. They're so eager. They're, they're, they're th so thirsty. And it's God, God kind of says, you know, I've, I've seen enough. And the Holy Spirit just falls all over Cornelius and that whole household. Um, they begin speaking in tongues. And Peter realizes something in this moment. He realizes, well, this what I'm witnessing here is the same thing that happened to me and the other disciples in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. We received the Holy Spirit. They've received the Holy Spirit. And this is significant because the Holy Spirit coming on God's people was prophesied in the Old Testament as a sign of God's new covenant. God said, I'm going to make a new relationship with you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. This was, this was God's new covenant with his people. And now here are these Gentiles. They haven't become Jewish. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't started obeying the law of Moses. Instead, they have received the same sign of the covenant, the same promised Holy Spirit as the Jews in Jerusalem did on the basis of faith. This changes everything for Peter. He realizes that entry into God's people is no longer defined by external human kind of standards, but instead simply by faith in Jesus. 
This is, just, this is, this is groundbreaking stuff. And Peter says, look, this is, this is all the evidence that we need. I mean, if God did not expect them to do a whole bunch of things before salvation, why are we? Why are we testing God? Why are we putting a yoke on, not egg yoke, by the way. We're not talking about, we're not egging people here. We're talking about a, like a farm implement, an inst- like a farm implement that, that keeps a, an animal controlled and restrained and directed. He's saying, why are we putting them on, on them, this heavy yoke that God himself doesn't put on them? Why are, why are we expecting them to obey the law of Moses before salvation when God clearly didn't expect that by pouring out his spirit on them? And this is something Paul gets at as well in his, in his letter to the Galatians. He says, all who rely on the works of the law, they're under a curse. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Peter's saying, look, we, we couldn't do this. We couldn't live up to this. Now we're expecting them to? Paul actually says earlier in Galatians that the, the, the law, the Old Testament law, served to lock everyone up under the power of sin. It wasn't a bad thing. It named sin, identified sin. It kind of showed that everybody was in bondage to sin. But the law couldn't save from sin. The law couldn't save people from the power of sin. That salvation has to come from somewhere else. And Peter says that salvation has come through the grace of our Lord Jesus. It's through grace. Now, you know what that word means, right? The word grace. It's something. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. And by very nature, a gift cannot be earned. A gift cannot be deserved. A gift cannot be something that you give to somebody because of prior merit. Grace is this unmerited, unearned gift of God's kindness and love and compassion how many of you have seen Les Mis? A bunch of you. How many of you have read it? Okay, you guys have something on me. There's like four people here. That's great. I, I've only watched it. It's one of the few musicals I've watched and enjoyed. I don't like musicals because I think that's not real. People don't walk around singing their thoughts, especially not in unison together with other people. I've literally never seen that before. So I really don't like it very much. But I did love, I did love Les Mis. It was so good. So Jean Valjean... He is arrested, imprisoned for stealing bread. Uh, he, breaks, he breaks out of prison. He finds refuge in the home of a, of a bishop, kind of a Catholic pastor of sorts. So he's, he, he finds refuge with him. The bishop, you know, brings him in, shows him hospitality, shows him grace, right? A convict, an escaped criminal, shows him this grace. Now at one point, Jean Valjean takes the, the bishop's silverware and runs away with it. And the police catch him and they bring him back to the bishop and it looks like this is it for Jean Valjean. But instead, the bishop brings his expensive candlesticks to Valjean and says, oh, my friend, you forgot these. You know, I wanted you to take the silverware, but you forgot the candlesticks. Please take these as well. And it's just this act of just pure, unmerited favor and grace. And it transforms Jean Valjean, totally transforms his life, this grace that he receives Grace is this, this beautiful, it's this beautiful thing. But here's the thing about grace. It, it strikes the core of our pride. It wounds our pride. Grace is a beautiful thing, but it's really, really hard for some of us because we want to prove that we deserve love, that we earn, that we've earned it, anything that we have, that, we, that this, isn't, this, isn't, this isn't something that was, I was just lucky enough to receive. Rather, I earned this, right? We want to prove ourselves, vindicate ourselves. In Les Mis, there's, 
there's a man named Inspector Javert. And Inspector Javert is determined that Jean Valjean is a criminal who needs to be brought to justice. And he devotes his life to, uh, to catching him. He is Valjean's adversary, his greatest threat, his greatest opponent. And, uh, and at one point in the, in the movie, I have no idea about the book, because like I said, I never watched it, or never read it, but in the movie, at one point, uh, Valjean has the opportunity to take Javert's life, to remove this threat, to remove this, this adversary, and he doesn't. Instead, he spares Javert's life. Now, you'd think that Javert would be incredibly grateful for this, but he's not. Instead, he sings, Russell Crowe sings, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sing this time. You, already, you guys already got one, one example of my singing. I'm not going to do it again. I'm just going to quote him. But, um, but he says, I should have perished by his hand. It was his right. And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me even so. He cannot handle the thought of being a recipient of grace. And so he flings himself off a high ledge to his death. Just cannot receive grace, cannot bear the thought of that. See, grace, grace is so counterintuitive. And that's really what sets the gospel, the Christian gospel, Christian faith apart from any other kind of world religion. I mean, in fact, in this way, you could say Christian faith is not a religion at all. If religion is man's attempt to, to kind of save to be saved, to, to curry the divine's favor in order to earn salvation, Christian faith says there's nothing that you can do. Nothing at all that you can do to save yourself. This is by grace. This is a gift through and through. In fact, the more you try to earn God's love, the more you try to justify yourself, the greater distance you actually put between yourself and salvation. The Bible tells us that we are lost in sin, that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are under the power of sin and on our own strength, we would be condemned. We would come under judgment. And yet God has given us grace through Jesus. His death is an atoning sacrifice for our sin, pays our debt. We are washed. We are cleansed. We are made right with God. We, we have that right standing with him, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done. It's grace through and through. Peter says it's through grace and he says it's by faith. Through grace, by faith. Verse 9, he says we have been purified by faith. Now we talked about what grace means. You know what faith means, right? Faith, faith is trust. Have you ever done a trust fall? Anyone done a trust fall? Some of you, these are, these are somewhat controversial, I think now, because sometimes people don't catch the person who's falling. Um, but I've, I've, done, I've done this a number of times, team building exercise. And if you don't trust people at all, you do it while you're standing on the ground and there's a foam pit behind you. And if you do trust them, maybe you do it from a ledge higher up. Apparently in this picture, someone's doing it from an airplane or something. I don't know, they're really trusting. But, uh, but if you, know, you, you trust the people that they've got really, you know, they're strong, they're, they're holding tightly together. You kind of let yourself go, right? You, you, fall, you fall backwards, trusting that they are going to catch you. And that in some ways is a picture of saving faith. That saving faith requires us surrendering our pride, surrendering our need, 
to save ourselves, to earn love, to justify ourselves, to gain acceptance by our own works, and simply surrendering to the grace of Jesus. Trusting that his grace is sufficient. That you don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to do other things in order to gain it, but that it is enough all on its own. You can fall back into the arms of Jesus and he will catch you. That's what, that's what faith looks like. Again, this is at the very heart of what sets Christian faith, what sets the gospel apart from anything else in the world. It's, it's actually a surrender and a trust in the good grace of God through Christ. As we said before, what the early church reaffirms here in Acts 15 about the heart of Christian faith is what we need to continually rediscover. When we rediscover it, it becomes the spark for revival. When we neglect it, it becomes the cause of our decline and decay. And this has been true through the centuries. In the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church was a hot mess, let me tell you. It was, it was corrupt beyond measure. You had, at one point earlier on, you had numerous popes at the same time all vying for, for authority, for power. You had priests who were having tons of children through all kinds of different women and concubine, concubines. You, you had people buying church offices, buying church leadership positions. You had Pope Leo X, who was, uh, who was telling people that if they gave money to the Roman Catholic Church and help build St. Peter's Basilica. Ironic that it was St. Peter's Church, apparently. But that if you gave money to St. Peter's Basilica, then your sins could be forgiven. Which is just a hair off from salvation through grace by faith, hey? Just a little, just a little bit different. And in that context, there was, a, there was an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, a, was not like Pope Leo. He was... He was genuinely concerned with doing what was good and right. He was extremely conscientious. But he was racked with anxiety because he was never sure if he was good enough. He was pretty sure that he wasn't. And he knew this concept about God's justice and righteousness and knew that he didn't measure up. And he was terrified by this. And one day he's reading Romans 1. And he realizes that the righteousness of God, which actually in the Greek is like the same word as justice, the righteousness of God, was a gift, a gift, a free gift of grace. And this changed everything for him. He realized the question of whether he was good enough for God's, faith, for God's acceptance was irrelevant, that it was grace. And, and so he said that there was, it was like the gates of heaven opened up and that he understood God's love in, in a whole new way. And, uh, and, and a little while later, he actually nailed a list of statements to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, where he said, look, Pope Leo is off here and here and here and here. And that sparked the Protestant Reformation, which led to many people coming to a, a fresh realization of the core of Christian faith. It was a much needed correction and renewal of the church after centuries of legalistic decay. A couple centuries after that, so another guy named John Wesley. John Wesley, like Luther, was intensely religious. In a, in, a, in a church, he was a pastor, he was a missionary, but he didn't understand the gospel. And so he was also racked with anxiety, had no peace in him, always wrestling with, have I done enough? Am I good enough? 
One day he's, uh, he's in London and he walks into a, a meeting on Aldersgate Street and somebody is reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And this is what John Wesley wrote in his journal. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This, this changed his life forever. John Wesley was a man now set on fire, preaching all over the place, telling people, this is what God has done for you in Christ. It's salvation through faith by, or through grace by faith. And, and his, his preaching helped spark what is known as the first great awakening. It was this incredible movement in the 18th century on both sides of the Atlantic that led to countless multitudes of people who came to a renewed life in Christ, who were filled with his spirit, filled with his, with his power through his grace. People who, who knew now the depth of their sin, knew how powerless they were to overcome it, and had come to recognize the incredible riches of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is what one pastor in the, in the States on, that, on, on our side of the Atlantic said. He said, look, our, our, our land was a place that was apathetic. It was lethargic. People didn't talk about spiritual things. That sound a little bit like our day today. 300 years later, and he said, when, when this happened, when this awakening happened and the preaching of the gospel was renewed, the heart of Christian faith, he says, then the gospel seemed almighty and carried all before it. It pierced the very hearts of men with an irresistible power. I have seen thousands at once melted down under it, all eager to hear as for life and hardly a dry eye to be seen among them. Thousands still remain shining monuments of the power of divine grace in that glorious day. The power of divine grace. And a few hundred years after that, I was a conscientious legalistic teenager. I don't think my, my story is not going to be quite as consequential as Luther or Wesley, but I'm going to tell you it anyways. I was, I was a pharisaical, legalistic teenager. I've told you some stories about this. Here's another story. I, I was so, so anxious to, to prove myself worthy of God's love and love of others. Um, uh, my parents once told me I, I have contacts, uh, lens, I have contact lenses, and I once lost a contact lens. So my parents were like, hey, when you take your contacts out, you should make sure that you're like directly above the contact lens case. And I'm taking my contacts out one night, and I look down and I realize to my shock and horror that I'm about three or four inches offline. I feel so bad about this. I go to my parents with this deep sorrow. I say, mom and dad, you won't believe what I did. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not joking. Like, this is, I'm serious. I'm like, mom and dad, I didn't obey you. I realized I disobeyed you. They're like, what is wrong with you, son? What kind of, what kind of teenager are you? What is, what is this? But I was, I was just so, so obsessed uh, to prove myself. I became a youth pastor. As a youth pastor, the whole thing, and, and this, is, this has continued to be a struggle, but the whole thing was like, I'm going to be validated by how many teens come to youth group. I'm going to be validated by numbers. That's going to prove that God loves me, prove that I'm worthy of this. And it wasn't working out. 
um, it, like dreams were kind of shattered. And at the same time, my, my parents had been divorced and all of this just kind of brought me to a place of going, I need to see a counselor. So I started seeing this Christian counselor and he helped me see how this had been true throughout my life, that I had never really understood grace. Here I was a pastor preaching the, the gospel, never really had understood grace, never really that believed that God truly did love me and wasn't waiting for me to reach perfection before he displayed that to me. And through meeting with him, I, it really kind of transformed my life, helped me experience God's love, understand the cross, the power of the good news of Jesus in a way that I hadn't before. See, this is the thing. For, for some of us, we have, we have grown up hearing this. You might be listening to this and you might be saying, no, I, I know this stuff. This is 101. I've moved on. You know, I've, I'm past, tell me something I don't know. No, you see, you, you haven't. You never do. As, as human beings, we continually slip back into self-righteousness, self-justifying. We need to continually again and again and again be reminded of the grace of God. You are saved through grace by faith. That's what's going to bring about renewal and revival in your own life when you freshly understand that and apprehend that. And others of you are hearing this for the first time. You're hearing, you're hearing the good news for the first time. You're finding out that following Jesus isn't just another religious kind of attempt, but it's something else entirely different. And you're fighting against it maybe even, right? You're fighting against this idea of just surrendering and falling into the arms of Jesus. And I want to tell you there is such life in this. There is such life and such freedom in this. There is assurance of the forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, salvation from his judgment on sin. I just want to encourage you to let go. Let go of that need to prove yourself and trust that his grace is sufficient. I'm going to pray, and, and I want to especially invite those who maybe haven't haven't said this to Jesus before, to say it now. And so maybe even just as, as I'm praying, and I'll pray slowly, you might even on your own uh, pray these words after me, just kind of repeating after me in your heart to the Lord. Hmm. Lord, I confess that I have done wrong. I have sinned against you and against others. And I cannot save myself. But I believe that you can save me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that his death is a sacrifice for my sins. I believe that I can be forgiven because of Jesus. And I receive your grace. I trust in you alone for my salvation. 
And I pray, God, for all of us here, wherever we are coming from, however it is that we try to save ourselves and whatever it is that we try to save ourselves from, I pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us in a fresh way, in a deep way, showing us, Lord, the sufficiency of your grace. I pray, Lord, that that grace would fill us and that it would transform us from the inside out, that it wouldn't just be behavior modification, trying to put on a moral show for the world, but that as we surrender to you, that your grace would just fill us and change us and renew us. Lord, that your grace would reign in us and over us. That we would know today that we have salvation, not because of what we have done, but because of your mercy and your kindness towards us. We praise you, we love you, we trust in you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.